Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Market Watch podcast by Amplify Live, where you can access the latest market insights with me, Anthony Chung, the head of market analysis and joined by our head of trading, Piers Curran, getting you up to speed and what mattered in markets this week. Okay, it is Friday, the 19th of March. And as usual, I'm joined by Head of Trading, Piers Curran, to go over some of the main events of the week, and namely that we're going to discuss our thoughts on the latest FOMC announcement and also the ongoing friction uh, between the EU and the UK over vaccines, particularly that of AstraZeneca. So, Piers, how's your week been overall? Yeah, not bad. Not bad, thank you. I mean, I'm a little bit, uh, I was just reading the FT this morning and it's like, I don't know, it's like I picked up the copy from last week or indeed actually the copy of the FT from the week before or the week before that or the week before that because one of the headlines was shares across Asia region tumble after stocks on Wall Street sold off in the face of rising US yields. <laughs> like Groundhog <crime> Day. <laughs> Yep, it's um, it is interesting in that regard because after the actual FMC, which I was, I was covering live with the team, um, equities moving up to kind of record high territory. I guess relief, perhaps a function of markets mispricing on an expectations of something more hawkish, particularly with that median dot plot for a rate hike in 2023. I must uh, add, chiefly driven by Goldman's pushing that view uh, for 11 people are going to jump camp looking for higher rates. And obviously, that got people a bit excited, particularly in this yield uh, environment. Uh, and that didn't materialize. And obviously, you had a bit of relief there. And yields momentarily backed off, but we've kind of resumed the trend. Interestingly, as you say, though, X out the record high in equities to then a 3% decline in, say, the NASDAQ the other day. And then actually, we're, we're pretty much flat for the week overall. Yeah. So yeah, we're going through this cycle, aren't we, of uh, little bouts of concern about yields, stocks sell off and then buy the dip and uh, stocks driven back to the highs and then oops, yields have gone up again, all right? 
let's sell off. And uh, we're in that kind of cycle. Um, and I think the, you know, the Fed on uh, Wednesday, you know, on, on the one hand, I mean, obviously one of the big things was that they upgraded their growth forecasts for 21 um, and, you know, they improved their unemployment rate forecast. So just, just for context there, they took their 2021 GDP growth forecast to, they revised it up to 6.5% from previous 4.2%. That was their forecast three months ago in December. So obviously quite a sharp increase to that in, in a short space of time. And, and of course, we know why, you know, stimulus and vaccine rollout and so on. Um, the unemployment rate, they revised down, their, their forecast revised down to 4.5% by year end. It used to be a 5% forecast. And then inflation, they were expecting 1.8% inflation for 2021 in December, and they've revised that up to 2.2%. So it's a bit of a, you know, on the one hand, you know, really bullish, you would perhaps use the word bullish there to describe their changes to forecasts, but then contradicting that they, they, they maintained their very dovish uh, stance with regards to policy and when are they going to look to raise rates and so on. Um, and so whilst on the headlines it's yeah, we're not raising rates till 2024. Um, you know, when you look under the bonnet a little bit and look at that dot plot, I mean, maybe you can describe for us how, how did that dot plot matrix? Well, what is the dot plot actually, and how did yeah. it move? So the dot plot uh, is a particular tool used to visually express, I guess, to the marketplace the Fed's forecasted view of where interest rates will be over a time horizon. So the end of this year end of 2022, 23, and then what they call the long run, the longer term. Um, it is questionable. Uh, I know you're not a fan of the dot plot from, uh, from various previous discussions that we've had. It's only the Fed that adopt this particular kind of pattern recognition. And what the dots are a representation of are individual members of the Federal Reserve and what they then see interest rates at, at those forecasted periods. And what it allows us to do is simply just draw a line, giving us a trajectory of what interest rates look like over time. Uh, and so market participants can look at either that line becoming more steep or more shallow, rates rising faster or slower. And that's what people in markets are effectively trading, whether it's rates or you know, currencies and so on. Um, the actual dot plots only come out every calendar quarter. So it's every alternate meeting from the Fed. And interestingly, actually, um, I wasn't really expecting Powell to do anything other than, you know, toe the line, so to speak. I think it was the markets that got a little ahead of themselves more than the Fed here. I think, as we've discussed before, Powell's got a firm definitive strategy in place. But I do envisage communication challenges coming, particularly because the next dot plots the next time these come out is June. Now in June, all being well, America's gonna be in even better shape. Uh, let's say the forecasts are there now, they, they're out, but we are actually materially going to be living through this growth spurt now in real terms. And there then brings about this kind of, this challenge. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you Piers about is the next steps, because I want people to understand that, you know, raising rates is almost like the last thing uh, in terms of the, the kind of sequencing of policy tools. So I just wanted to, if you could talk me through 
this idea of the strategy of communication over what policy tool and then what's the timelines associated with the rolling out let's say the, the kind of pulling off the stimulus accommodative uh, tools in that respect yeah i guess the analogy would be the central bank kind of changes policy direction at the speed of if you like the world's biggest oil tanker right it changes policy direction fantastically slowly and it's got to do that because it doesn't want to spook markets right you, you've got to be seen as a, a policy setting um kind of body that you know take things a lot of analysis and a lot of consideration and a lot of pre-warning right and so that's that forward guidance thing that's the communication tool that's one of the reasons we have that dot plot matrix right so they can give us that forward guidance but um, the point is that they're not going to turn around they're not going to say in one meeting you know guys rates are going to stay unchanged till 2024 and then three months later guys we're going to raise rates in 2022 there's no way they would do that because markets would freak out and panic. And the point there is if markets freak out and panic, well, then that has a meaningful impact on the underlying economy. If you think about yields, if yields start to spike, then actually that does impact the cost of credit and, and borrowing costs. And so it does tighten monetary conditions, just the Fed saying something that, that people weren't expecting. So you know, the way it's going to go here, obviously, at the moment, they're still rates are zero, but don't forget, they're still pumping their QE program at full speed, right? Don't forget that they're, they're printing $120 billion per month, and they're buying, you know, assets at $120 billion per month, right? So the first kind of step in, let's say, let's call it the exit strategy, let's say the economy does start growing fast and let's say that the fed thinks that that's sustainable and we'll come back to sustainability of growth in a minute but let's just say they do so what's the exit strategy well first it's starting to say to markets look we're thinking about tapering our qe program that's not even stopping qe that's saying look we're thinking about starting to stop Sorry, right. and actually on that point in the press conference on wednesday one of the journalists asked powell he said, have you started to think about thinking of tapering? <laughs> right, perfect. Right, that, that sums it up perfectly. So what they'll do is they'll want to guide us and give us pre-warning that they're going to start to taper. So tapering means just reducing the amounts by which they're, they're printing money each month, right? So it's $120 billion a month at the moment. They'll probably want to give us at least two meetings warning. And, and, I, and, and I say that because I'm looking at the past and, and, and what's the kind of pathway to try and exit. So normally they want to give us at least two meetings warning probably, right? So they're going to have to start, let's say the next meeting, they say, right, we're going to start, we won't other way, but let's just say they, that we're going to start to look at maybe tapering in six months time. So that means more 120 billion a month, 120 billion a month. And in six months time, they might take it down to, and here's the a debate, there's the speed of taper, right? How, how much is that ratchet down going to be? I think Goldman's think it's going to be 15 billion per meeting. Um, so that's reducing the QE program by 15 billion. Don't forget that here, the language, right? You're reducing stimulus, but it is still stimulus, right? But that's, now, that's not how markets react. Markets think, right, that's the beginning of the end. 
It's the beginning of the end of stimulus, right? And so we start to paint this picture of a world without any stimulus at all, even though there is still stimulus. Goldman's think 15 billion, I don't know. Last, last time they started tapering a few years back, it was at 10 billion a month, they were reducing it. But whatever it is, right, the sequence would be a couple of meetings before they actually start tapering, they're gonna to start to communicate it, okay? Then they start to taper. If it's at 15 billion, per meeting, eight meetings, it's going to take about a year to stop QE. So actually, if you think about the forward guidance, it's going to take a year and a half to stop the stimulus. So they're going to have to pull the trigger on that communication in June. If they start talking about tapering in June, you're really looking at an end of 2022 is when they stop QE. Then they might start looking to raise interest rates, but they but they might want to they, they might want to give a bit of time after stop stopping tapering they might want to give it a quarter or even two to make sure that the the economy and growth is sustainable enough for it to survive without that stimulus right and if that's the case then okay maybe let's start looking to raise rates so you're talking about second half of 2023 here earliest right and all along the economy's got to be strong and sustainable growth Right, and we'll actually talk about some of those risks of that sustainable growth in, in in a moment towards the back end of the podcast. So stay tuned for that because definitely it's, it's going to be an interesting point to to discuss. But there's another tool that often comes up that I think warrants you giving a bit of an explanation for, for everyone to get on point, which is Operation Twist. So other than just being a jazzy name, what is that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Operation, well, actually, the name, now you said jazzy name. Do you know where this comes from? Why do they call it Operation Twist? Argentina. No. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your default answer for, for any yeah, questions? Just, just, just any, anything that's like, uh, well, actually, that's a good strategy. Uh, at least you sound semi-intelligent if you just Incorrect. say something a bit random. Incorrect. <laughs> uh, actually, Operation Twist, they first did it. In 1961 was the first time they did Operation Twist. Um, they call it Twist because 1961, Chubby Checker, Let's Twist Again, was the big hit. You know it's, it's on your Saturday well, night I mean, playlist. That's and definitely on my other podcast list that I listen to. Yeah, of course. Uh, absolutely. So 1961 <laughs> was the first time the Fed did this. So my point being, this isn't a new thing, right? I think a lot of people think that it was new when they last did it in 2011, but it wasn't new then either. Anyway, the point, what is this policy? Well, it's basically, it's a little bit of a, it, I would call it QE light. It's like when you've ended QE, right? So you've stopped the stimulus, but you're a little bit worried that the economy is perhaps not strong enough and that it's, there's a bit of panic that stimulus has stopped. It's like QE light. What they do is that, and it's about kind of engineering a change in the shape of the yield curve. Okay, and what they do, so remember the Fed own a lot of bonds, right? Because they're buying $120 billion worth every month. So they own, this is their balance sheet. They've got a lot of bonds on their balance sheet. So what they do, they sell their short dated bonds. Okay, and with the money they get from that, they buy longer duration bonds. And in terms of what that has, in terms of an effect on the yield curve, it, it lifts the short end of the yield curve and it lowers the long end. So it flattens the yield curve. And what does that mean? It just means that deposit rates go up and actually longer term borrowing costs go down. Okay. So it's actually a stimulus in that you're suppressing long term borrowing costs, but it's not 
inflationary because you're not actually printing new money here. You're not increasing the money supply. So it's not full on QE, but it's a tool to try and engineer a similar outcome. So is it, are we twisting the tapering or are we twist taper or taper twist? Argentina. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, who knows? I mean, look, that, that'll be a 20... I mean, it could even be 23, but look, I'm sure people will start talking about it because they obsess about the Fed, right? Yeah. Well, look, let, let, let's move on. Conscious of time. And I definitely yeah. want to have a conversation about vaccines because it's been definitely something that's been capturing a lot of the mainstream media attention. Uh, I must front run our conversation and we can discuss this why it hasn't really had that much of an impact on markets, if any at all. So getting everyone up to speed, starting off with the UK, uh, the NHS warned earlier this week of a significant reduction in supplies of jabs in order to freeze on new vaccination appointments for April. Um, that meaning then that the start of inoculations of under 50s would be delayed, albeit that I've heard something different from, yeah. from someone I know. Yeah, I weirdly, I got, I got the call. Well, I got the text. <laughs> I mean, I'm 43. And I got, and I've got no underlying health issues, so I'm in the normal queue. And yeah, I got a text on Wednesday saying, "Come on in." So I've got my vaccine tomorrow. There you go. Wow. <laughs> so, so what I mean, delays? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it does fly a little bit in contrast, but I guess you just beat the uh, the perhaps the the cutoff. But Maybe. one of the things here is that um, the delay chiefly is down to, and this this was quite interesting actually, the way that the media are kind of spinning the optics on this because at the time the government were like similar to the eu astrazeneca why are you not delivering on what you've promised to us astrazeneca saying there's nothing going on here we're just doing what we're doing and actually it ends up that the supply issues relates to consignment from a manufacturer in india where they're just going to basically deliver five million instead of 10 million that originally ordered said, and half the order has been delayed by additional month that's created this bottleneck. For one then, I mean, is this, does this disrupt the UK's roadmap in your mind or not? Um, well, not according to Boris, but I don't know. I mean, if, if it genuinely is that 5 million vaccines are, no long, are, are delayed by a month, well then, it's got to have some kind of impact on that roadmap. However, to kind of counter that argument, I mean, the UK is so far ahead. And in fact, actually, it's now 49% of the adult population have had their first jab. So you could argue there's enough, uh, like, well, if you want to call it herd immunity in a way, that, that actually we could continue with the plan of opening up, um, even if there is a slight delay, to be honest. So it was so far ahead. So I, I actually don't think this will impact the UK's um, opening up. Yeah, and I mean, on this kind of subject, midweek, it did look like this could actually become more meaningful for markets. And the reason for that is, is that there's this ongoing kind of spat with Europe and the UK about particularly the Astra drug. Now, what this leaves is quite a potential tricky situation for the UK is obviously they're heavily geared to the Astra drug. So if you have a delay there, that's a problem. Then you've got the Pfizer vaccine, which a lot of the the main export of vaccines out of Europe goes to the UK, of which a proportionate amount is manufactured in mainland Europe. And that's what Europe are threatening to kind of hold back. And then you layer in someone like Moderna, 
But being the, the kind of new entrant to the vaccine market, they just haven't got the ability to switch on the manufacturing. I mean, they're due to supply a few hundred thousand um, doses for the first delivery next month. So if you had no Pfizer, if you have lack of Moderna, and then you have supply constraints on the Astra vaccine, is that a risk? If so, uh, what proportional risk did you see that? Um, yeah, I think it is a risk in so much as, you know, if the EU pull the trigger and get, you know, you know, close the borders, so to speak, and, and vaccine wars begin, you know, that's really what we're talking about here. And it, so if it does escalate and we get a full-blown vaccine war, which could happen if Europe make that decision, because then if Europe make it, well, then others will go, well, fine, we'll retaliate with the same measures, thanks. And then, you know, then I think it does become a major thing that can definitely disrupt markets and, and everyone on, on the planet, to be honest. But, you know, I think the EU, they're desperate now. They're really, they're so far behind, um, you know, they've, and they've messed it up on the supply side. And now they've gone and messed it up on the sort of vaccine take up and the confidence that people have about the vaccine, given that they've, you know, everything that's happened with regards to the risks, uh, apparent risks around the AstraZeneca or, or the kind of made up risks, if you like, about the AstraZeneca jab. So I think they're so far behind. They haven't got enough supply. Now a load of people don't want it anyway, even if there is a supply. And, and they've kind of created this hole for themselves. And when you're in a hole, you get desperate. And that's the, that's the risk, right? Just how desperate do they get? Yeah, and kind of compounding that is that actual COVID, new COVID cases are on the rise in, in right. France and Italy in particular. Um, this week, obviously, we just heard last night confirmation that Macron's government has put Paris and several other regions under stricter lockdown. Intensive care beds, the, the infrastructure's under incredible pressure in France, similar situation to where we were in the UK only a few months ago. In, in France, by numbers, um, daily new infections have risen to above 30,000 nationally. That's actually up 20% in a week. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's definitely challenges there for sure. But more encouraging, I'd say, to this debate to finish this week off is that the EMA, so the European Medicines Agency, came out yesterday and basically made a statement that, look, the, the benefits of the shot from Astra outweigh the possible risks. Straight away, Germany, France, Spain, Italy are reversing course and now are going to start administering the Astra drug again. So after all that heated debate in the beginning of the week, it has softened slightly um, to that degree. Yeah, but damage is done or some yeah. damage because people won't, some, a certain portion won't want it now. They'll be, they'll be afraid of it. So badly managed. Okay, well, look, let's, um, let's move on then. A quick look to next week uh, and a few things to, to finish on. So next week, just running through some of the highlights. Um, this isn't an extensive list, but UK jobs data on Tuesday, UK CPI Wednesday, UK retail sales on Friday. So get a bit of a health check of where we're at for the UK economy. Um, US data, um, you do have the durable goods report, the weekly doughies, and you've got a two and five year auction next week from the States with the final Q4 GDP reading and core PCE on Friday. And then probably one of the major data points, you've got the, the kind of global manufacturing service PMI preliminary numbers. Um, that are coming out. But one of the final things um, to finish on, Piers, was what do you think about the uh, frosty reception in Alaska for US and Chinese officials? 
Yeah, really interesting. Obviously, this is Biden's first sort of uh, engagement um, with regards to sort of trade talks with China. So it happened yesterday. And and I mean, people weren't expecting much, but wow, I mean, it kind of it kind of fired off in a very sort of acrimonious manner, way, way more so than I was expecting. And, you know, like a mudslinging match. And I think it's um, I think it's something to watch, you know, when the COVID risk subsides in terms of what markets are looking at and worried about, you know, what what comes next? What are the big factors for traders and investors to be monitoring factors that potentially risk this recovery, this growth recovery? And I think that US-China trade situation and, and Biden and what stance is he going to take on it compared to Trump, I think is a really important factor. And it's got off to a really bad start. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that progresses. Yeah. And, and one of the things we, we spoke about earlier this morning was you mentioned earlier about the sequencing of, of, of policy incremental changes over time as the economy improves and so forth. So if we go into the second half of the year, the debate begins about tapering, that might well then commence that kind of kicks off this kind of slow grind to normalizing policy. Um, government spending, fiscal spending cannot go on indefinitely, certainly not to the magnitude that it has done. So do you think it's a, a viable strategy of China to keep arm's length with the US for the time being, knowing that the relative short-term roadmap from a Chinese perspective, uh, given that their, their their leadership is in play for the long term, right. if they just hold out for six months, the economy hits its its kind of main six and a half percent, and it it will flag from there, albeit still be growing, but at a more moderate pace. Is that an opportunity for the Chinese to tighten the screws a little bit strategically? There maybe. I mean, I think. Um... You are right in terms of timing. I mean, at the moment, it's hunky-dory, right, in the US. Big stimulus checks coming, you know, vaccine rollout. So hunky-dory. But I think if you go to the end of the year, as you're saying, you know, those stimulus checks have been spent, right? And right, if this China trade war risk rebubbles up, then you're right. You go, you flip from what is a double, triple positive at the moment to a, perhaps a double negative. And I guess... You could say that Chinese policy could be geared around, as you said, you know, ratcheting up the ante on these talks just as the U.S. economic momentum slows. You know, they want, you know, to, they want the U.S. economy to be weak when they're negotiating, right? Because they'll have uh, that'll give them an edge in that uh, in that negotiating um, environment. But at the moment, yeah, you're right. At the moment, the U.S. economy is on fire, right? We're expecting it to rebound sharply, so it would make sense that they would. They would wait, but what I what I read about what they were talking about at the talks yesterday it doesn't look like they're waiting. But that's I think because the U.S. went in quite aggressive first, and I think the the Chinese response to the aggressive U.S. rhetoric was probably more aggressive than they had planned for. But they were just reacting like for like for what the U.S. came out with. Is that because Biden's conscious of his, the perception of him and his dealing with China coming on the back of a very assertive Trump? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, exactly. He doesn't want to be seen as the soft touch, yeah. right? Oh, it's Biden now, right? Fine. China think they've got the upper hand. So I think he wants to get set out his stall, you know, strong at the start. I think that's kind of what happened. Yeah. And, uh, and let's not forget midterms. US midterms are not far off now. <laughs> it feels like we've only just finished. 
but you know, that's another a discussion for another time. But yeah, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks everyone for, for listening as per usual. I um, hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, absolutely, if you ever want us to, to comment on something specifically, then just feel free to, to get in touch. Um, I'm quite active on, on Twitter. If you just search my name or um, you can just drop us an email at info amplifytrading.com. Otherwise, Piers, enjoy your weekend. Um, good luck for your shot yes. tomorrow. Thanks very much. Looking yeah. forward to it. All right. Take care, everyone. Take care. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.